Um, if you have your Bibles, uh, open them up to Mark chapter 9. Uh, we're in a series called Tethered uh, in the book of Mark, if you're just joining us. Um, if, you've, if you've been here for a while, we've been in Mark for a while, and we are slowly working our way through to see how Jesus is preparing his disciples for the day that he's going to be gone. And then by preparing these disciples to be connected to him, he's in turn preparing us as we read the word and how we stay connected to Jesus uh, as well. Uh, this week, uh, I, was, I was out and I, I was mowing my grass, uh, which actually I love to do. Um, it, it's, it's something that I enjoy. I actually probably take a little bit more pride in it than I probably should. Um, that's not always been the case. It's increasingly becoming so. And, and I was out and I was mowing, but there was something wrong um, with, with the mower or with me um, while I was rowing because uh, when I was mowing because uh, the lines didn't look right. Did any of y'all, like when you mow, you try to get the lines, you know, like you're crisscrossing or you're, you're doing certain patterns or something like that. Like I was mowing and the lines were all kinds of jacked up. And, and I was like, what's wrong? Like what, what, what's going, going on here? Uh, some of the grass was higher in some places and it was lower than others. And I'm like, well, I, I, I can't figure out what's happening. I guess maybe next week and I, I'll do better next week when I get out here. And, uh, and so I go and I, I get done and I park the mower in the garage and I look down and the mower has a flat tire. <laughs> the, the whole time that I was mowing my yard, I was mowing on a flat tire. So if you've got one side that's kind of leaning down and the other side is high, you're going to groove your yard, right? And so I realized I was mowing uh, on a flat and that's the reason why the whole thing was wonky. Um, flat tires happen, don't they? When you've got a flat tire, that kind of messes everything up. But what happens when the flat tire isn't on our mower? What happens when it's not just our grass that starts feeling wonky? Um, what happens when we have flat tires in our relationships or uh, in our connection with God or uh, in our marriages and our friendships? What, what happens when everything starts to feel like it's a little bit out of whack? And you can feel it. You know it. You know what's going on. Things don't feel normal. And you're like... And it just feels like there, there, there's a flat that's going on. What do we do? What do we do sometimes when our faith feels like it's running on a, a flat tire? Now, I don't want to make the assumption that everybody in this room is, is a believer. Uh, actually, before I came out this morning uh, and last night, that I was praying for, for you, um, not knowing what your name would be sitting in the room this morning, um, that if you don't know Jesus, that today would be a day where um, whatever your story has been in the past, that today would be a day where you hear the voice of God in a brand new way, that today would be a new day where you just hear him speaking directly to your heart. Then today might be a day where you just, you trust Jesus and you just lay down everything and say, Lord, I surrender. You've been chasing me for a while and now it's all yours. And so like for you, if that's you in that category today, the only thing that you need to hear this morning is trust in Jesus. But there are people in the room who have trusted Jesus um, throughout their lives and you've believed in Jesus for maybe a couple years or you've been a follower for decades and, and, and you've been through different seasons of, of your life. You know him and you've walked with him for, for some time now. And this doesn't always happen, but sometimes it does. Over the years, there are different seasons in, in our life. Seasons where we just are growing exponentially, right? And we just, uh, everything in our life feels amazing and there's fruit hanging on the vines, on the branches, and just things feel awesome. It's those seasons of life and the moments of life that we look back on and say, man, I would love to go back to that. I, whatever was happening back then, I want to experience that thing again. But if we're honest, there's also these seasons where things just feel a little bit wonky, where maybe things feel a little bit flat in our life. And I, I would say that these are these moments where we have seasons of drought. And even in those seasons of drought, 
doubt might begin uh, to be produced. Um, maybe like you feel like you're in a rut um, or like you're running on a, a bit of a, of a flat tire or maybe even like you're stuck. Anybody ever feel like that? Anybody feel like you're in a rut? You're like, you're kind of in a place. You're like, I, I don't know how to get out of here. We, we would say that we love God. Like that's not in question. He's important to us. He's valuable to us. But the power in our life seems to be missing. Like somebody just reached over and turned off the power switch. Why is that? Why, why, why do these moments kind of come in? Here, here's why I think this happens. And this, there's probably a lot of reasons. But for this week, this is the, the thought I think that uh, the Lord dropped into my mind. I, I think it happens that, um, and you can write this down if you want to. It's the object of our faith. It doesn't mean anything to you yet, but we're going to build on that. It's the object of our faith, or I'll say even the focus of our attention. Um, the focus of our attention begins to change. Uh, A.W. Tozer, who's a, who's a guy that I've really been enjoying reading here recently, um, he uh, talks a lot about this, and he calls it the gaze of our soul, the, the thing that we look at, the, the thing that drives us. Where is our heart? What is our soul looking at? He said that faith is the gaze of our soul upon a saving God. And so if there are moments where we feel flat or like somebody has reached over and turned off the power switch, it, it might be because our gaze has shifted away from uh, looking at the person of Jesus and we begin to look at someone or, or, or something else, right? Our, our gaze, the, our, the, the, the gaze of our soul begins to shift. Um, I want you to try to think through this with me. Um, I, I know that uh, Nebraska football is getting ready to start, right? Anybody excited about that? Yeah, that might be the most excited you get all day, right? That Nebraska football is getting ready to start. Like, go Huskers. It, it's coming down the road. And then everything for the next few months is going to be crazy, and you're going to be looking at your calendar. You'll be like, hey, let me see when the game's going to be before I give you a yes or a no, okay? That's just how it works. That's, that's the, the world that we're living in. Um, and so in sports that involve a ball, maybe involve a football, you usually have to either get the ball into the hoop in order to score, you've got to hit the ball out of the park, or you've got to get around the bases in order to score, um, or you've got to get the ball into the end zone if you're going to score, if you're going to end up winning the game, right? So the ball for the game is a very important object. Um, but has anybody ever gone to Cooperstown to see a ball? Anybody ever go to the Hall of Fame for baseball, if you don't know what Cooperstown is, to, to see just a baseball does, does anybody um, start collecting uh, or go to a, a hall of fame for basketball or football to go see a famous football or to see a famous basketball? Do kids collect cards of, 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 of brand new Wilson basketballs and Nike footballs? They go just like, hey guys, I got the brand new Nike football card. We don't do that, right? Because we know that although the ball is what scores, it's not the ball that's the most important thing in the game. We, we just know that that's not the case. We don't focus on the ball. We focus on the player who controls the ball, the person who hits the ball, the person who kicks the ball, the person who catches the ball, the person who throws the ball. We don't focus on the ball unless you're trying to catch the ball, right? You focus on, on the player. To focus anywhere else is going to be to rob or distill the glory that is due for that person. The ball doesn't get the glory. The person gets the glory. So to put it bluntly, when we feel flat or we feel like there might be a lack of power in our walk with God, or we feel like things maybe have become a little bit routine and we're in a rut, nine times out of ten, it's because the object of our faith has changed. The thing that we're looking at has, has changed. We're looking at something else. We're focusing on the ball instead of focusing on the player. It, it may be that we start looking at an outcome that we want 
instead of looking at God. It may be that we start relying a little bit too much on ourselves, and we start relying a little less on God. And so if we're feeling flat, maybe the gaze has changed. Maybe the gaze of our soul is looking at something else. Let me show you how Jesus points this out in Mark chapter 9, okay? The, um, go ahead and open your Bible or your device if you're not already to Mark chapter 9. And we're going to be in verse 14. <clears throat> the disciples, they are slamming right into a life lesson of how easy it is to, to, uh, in, in our faith for it to become routine and for it to begin to feel like maybe the power or the lights have gone out or maybe if you want to refer to it as the mojo, the mojo uh, of the faith just to be kind of be, to be canceled out. Look what he says in verse uh, 14. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through this whole section, okay? And then we're going to come back and we're going to make some observations that are, that, that are in here. So if you don't have a Bible, it's going to be up here on the screen and we're going to see what God has for us. All right, verse 14. <clears throat> when they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them and some teachers of religious law are, were arguing with them. When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe and they ran to greet him. What is all this arguing about, Jesus asked. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He's possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said to him, You faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And so they brought the boy, but when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy, the spirit often throws him into the fire or into the water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean, if I can, Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe but help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, he said. I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as people said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet, and he stood up. Afterward, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out the evil spirit? Jesus replied, this kind, this kind can be cast out only by prayer. As soon as we read this section, we know that there's a problem, right? Because Peter, James, and John, they've come down the mountain after having this crazy experience with Jesus. They've been able to see the full glory of God revealed in the person of Jesus. There's this amazing moment for these three. But when you're on top of the mountain, you've got to come down at some point. And so when they come down, to, down from the mountain, they are back into reality. Reality smacks them right in the face. Because when they get back down here, there is a huge little dust-up that's happening with the religious leaders and the nine other disciples who did not go up to the mountain. And so we got to ask the question, what's going on? It's the question that Jesus asked when they come down too. In verse 16, he says, hey, what's all the fighting about here? 
Now, what I'm going to try to do is we've read this, but I'm going to try to summarize what's happening here. And, and I want you to, you dads specifically, to jump in and try to follow along with me. Moms and ladies, that doesn't mean that you're out of the picture on this. Okay, follow along too. But this is a dad who is bringing his son to Jesus because he wants Jesus to do something for his son, okay? There is this father in the crowd who steps up. And, and I feel like as he steps up, you can hear his desperation. You can hear the angst inside of him that begins to come out in his words. There's exhaustion that's mixed in here too. So he's the one who jumps up and he says, hey, I've been looking for you. you. You've been up there, but I've been looking for you. I brought my son to you because he's sick and I want you to heal him. Every day of his life, he's controlled by a demonic spirit. He won't let him talk. He won't let him hear anything. He is always foaming from the mouth. He's grinding his teeth, and he keeps getting down, or he keeps getting thrown down to the ground. And sometimes when he's thrown down to the ground, he's thrown into the fire. And the other times when he's not thrown into the fire, he's thrown into the water sometimes. Every day of my son's life is torture because of this demon. And verse 22 says, this demon is trying to kill him. When you read that, do you hear the desperation in this father's voice? But he is pleading for his son. He wants Jesus to intervene here. Now, this is hard for us to put into a context because we're reading about demon possession, and it's not a regular expression for us. This isn't something that we regularly bump into. It's around us. It's certainly here. We are in the middle of a spiritual battle every day that we wake up in a spiritual realm that we can't see. We experience it, but we don't visibly be able to see that. And sometimes we can't even get our mind around it to comprehend it enough, but it's happening. But it doesn't always present itself the way that we're reading it here in the scriptures. It doesn't show like this. And so it's hard for us to get our minds around people being possessed like this. Um, a few years ago when I was in India, you see this kind of stuff uh, all the time. It's, it's out in the open. Um, there was a place in, in Mumbai where those who have been possessed by demons or they've been attacked or they've been oppressed by the demonic, um, they've had their lives not only spiritually impacted, but their lives have been uh, physically impacted as well. They have physically been thrown into fires. They have been thrown into the water trying to drown these individuals. And their bodies have been twisted and broken and contorted in ways that we can't even imagine and then this particular place in Mumbai, they line up on the street, heading out to a temple that's out on the water, thinking that if they can get close to the temple or if somebody could lead them in there, that their bodies might be healed or that the demons might come uh, out uh, of them. And they're lining up in hopes of being healed. But instead of seeking Jesus, they line up outstretched towards this temple. And this temple is never going to do for them what only Jesus can do. But they've got hope in this place. And it's really a sad, sad picture. They've been broken and because of that, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse for them. This man's son is facing something like this every single day of his life. Every single day. And here's where the crisis of faith begins to come in for this man. While he's telling Jesus this story about his son and the pain that he's going through, he says at the end of, of verse 18, I brought him to your disciples. I brought him to him so that they might cast out this evil spirit but they couldn't do it. Why? Why Why couldn't these disciples cast out this particular spirit out of this boy? Because just a few chapters ago, do you remember in chapter 6 where Jesus empowers these disciples to go out on this mission trip two by two, and he specifically says, I am giving you the authority to cast out demons. 
So they have this authority that's been given to them. And so they go out and, and, they, and they do that. But now, here they are. This distraught father is in front of them and saying, hey, boys, can you help my son? Can you do something about this? And, and they can't do it anymore. So why could they do it then, but they can't do it now? Here's what I think. I may be wrong, but here's what I think. I think it's because their gaze has changed. Would you write this down? Their gaze has changed. I think it's somewhere in this danger of familiarity. And, and, and I will even say it like this. I, I, I sometimes I'll call it flat tire faith. Flat tire faith. It's when the moment-to-moment faith of relying on Jesus, it's not really that big of a deal in our lives anymore. We've seen God come through in so many different ways. He's come through for us in the past, but instead of inviting him back into the everyday moments of our lives with the big stuff and with the little stuff, now we just try to do it on our, on our own. And it's not any malintent that we have. It's not because we're ticked off at God or anything like that, or, or, or we just want to go off and do our own thing. It's that things get, they get busy in our life, and when things get busy, things start creeping in. And for me personally, the busier that I get, it seems the more stuff starts to creep in and the more I let Jesus creep out. Has that ever happened to anybody else? The busier that my schedule gets, the, thing, the more stuff that creeps in, my time with Jesus and my dependence on him, for whatever reason, it begins to creep out. Now, there are sometimes I, I, I catch it and I realize what's going on and I get back on the saddle really quickly. Um, but that is a reality uh, of my life sometimes. And, and so what I do is I call this flat tire faith. The, the tire is there. The faith is there. We're just not taking the time to stop and put air in the tire. We're not, we're not pumping it up. And so up to this point, here's what's going on with the disciples. They've already gone in some, some pretty sketchy and scary situations. They've gone and they've cast out a lot of demons. We don't know how many they've cast out. We just know that they've gone out on their mission trip together and they've done that. But we know that it was enough where they come back and they're talking with Jesus and they're all excited about what they've done and they, they tell him everything and they said, let us tell you about everything that we have done and then Jesus takes them away so they don't get stuck up into that pride a little bit. But in the moment, Mark says that they cast out many demons and they healed many sick people. Now, I want to give us a caution. In our walk with Jesus, there is this dangerous little critter that can pop up when we least expect it, okay? You want to know what that critter is? I'll tell you in just a moment in case you want to know. Um, There's something that happens in us when God chooses to use us. Now, we obviously feel amazing when we're instrumental in leading somebody to faith, right? I don't know if you've had the opportunity to lead somebody to the Lord. That's just an amazing feeling. We feel amazing when we sit down beside somebody and we teach them the scriptures and we show them how to follow Jesus and we show them what a quiet time looks like and we show them what prayer life looks like and, and, and we're leading them to, to not only mature in their own faith, but they're lead, we're leading them to have fruit that's going to be on the tree that enables others to grow as well. That kind of stuff feels good. If you're in a moment where you're able to see somebody actually be healed, like that's an amazing thing to be a part of too. Like it is awesome. It feels good to be used by God. There are these mental markers that we make in our mind when we've been a part of what God has, has been doing. And there are mental markers in my mind where um, I know that for certain that God has used me to be impactful in somebody's life. Like, I, I, I know that my best friend who was a Mormon, when he came and he sat down and he talked to me, he said, hey, would you tell me about Jesus? And, and we had a conversation and I got to lead into the Lord. I know that was a mark where that I will never forget, where the Lord used me, and I, and I go back to that moment all the time and just think, God, thank you, for, thank you for that opportunity. 
I know there are marks in my mind where I've been able to sit with grieving moms and dads and aunts and uncles who've lost people that they loved. And I get to sit there and I get to hold their hand or I get to wrap my arm around them. I get to talk with them through their grief. Like those are mental markers that I have about my faith that I look, I just look back and like, God, thank you for letting me be a part of that. Those things feel good. But there are too many moments where um, I've stood there and I've patted myself on the back, taking credit for work that only God can do. That he could do it without me. He could do it by himself. He could choose to use somebody else. And I stand there and I pat myself on the back like I had something special to, to do with that. Guys, if we're not careful, there's a spiritual pride that can begin to kick in that almost leaves us unable to be used until God can get that thing back in order. Feelings of, hey, I've, I've done that before or this isn't really that big of a deal. I can pull this off on my own. And things that maybe we've spent hours praying over in the past in our lives. Things that we've spent, man, I am pleading with God on this to show up and to do miraculous things. And I believe that he can because I've prayed and he's done it before. Maybe the pride of our familiarity begins to kick in. And instead of calling on God to intervene in those moments, we just kind of take it on ourselves And we say, hey, step back. I've done this before. I've got this. I wonder if that's what's happening with the disciples here. They've seen it before. They've done it before. Hey, everybody step back. I've got this. I wonder if that's what's happened with these guys. They looked at the man. They looked at the son. And they genuinely, they want to help him. They want to jump in. But maybe they took their eyes off the object of their faith. And instead of looking at, uh, letting their gaze be on the Lord who has given them the power in the past, they've fixed their gaze on themselves and they go at it alone. I wonder if that's what happened. Here's what Jesus says about it in verse 19. <clears throat> he said to them, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. That seems pretty strong, doesn't it? You ever hear Jesus get mad like this? That you faithless people, how long do I have to put up with you? How long must I um, deal with you? How long must I bear with you? If you ever wonder if Jesus got wore out by people, if you ever wonder if his disciples wore him out or if people wore him out, this is your evidence. He was emotionally exhausted with the people in his life in this moment, whether it be the disciples or the crowd that was, his, that was around him. He's saying, you guys still don't get it. And if you wonder what that's like, if you've got kids, this is what we go through, right? My, my goodness, we teach our kids and we teach our kids and we teach our kids and we think, yes, they've got it. And we launch them and they don't have it. And you're like, how long is it going to be before you get it? And we're frustrated. We love them. We care about them. And we're leading them. But are you not frustrated and exhausted? Like, did I just waste seven years of my life? Did, like, did nothing land when I was talking to these guys? This is Jesus being exhausted and exasperated with his disciples. But when he says, you faithless people, do you think that he really means that they've got zero faith? that there's nothing inside it, that they have nothing that they're believing in? I don't think that's what he means here. The problem isn't whether or not they have faith. Everybody has faith. Faith is putting our trust in something. The question was, what are they going to put their faith in? What, what, what is it that they're placing their faith in right now? Where is their gaze? What are they looking at right now? They had faith, but I think they stopped looking at Jesus. And when they stopped looking at Jesus, they still expect the same type of results. But you can't have Jesus-sized results without Jesus being involved. Does that make sense? You can't expect Jesus to show up without asking Jesus to show up. In verse 19, he says, guys, bring the boy to me. And so the dad brings the boy to Jesus and the boy in front of Jesus has this convulsion. 
he has another seizure right there in front of, of Jesus. And even in the middle of all this chaos that's going on, this is a scary moment, right? I don't know if you've ever seen this kind of stuff. But this, this, is, this is not like strolling through the grocery store just picking up groceries for the day. Like this is intensely wacky and wild stuff. And this is happening right in front of Jesus and everybody else who's in the crowd in this moment. But while all this chaos is happening, Jesus begins to talk with the Father. He's not even giving any attention to what's happening here. He starts to talk with the Father. He says, how long has this been happening? How long has this been happening? You ever go to the doctor and you've got something that's ailing you or your child or somebody in your family and the doctor sits down with you and takes a little bit of extra time and he just says, how long has this been happening? Tell me the story. Tell me what, you're, tell me what you've been going through. This is Jesus being a good doctor for, for this man in this moment. He's sitting down and there's compassion here. And I don't want to be overly emotional here, but if you've walked through hard times with your family, if you walk through hard times with somebody that you love for any duration of time and you've seen the extreme hurt and harm that happens with people and that it's been happening for a long time, there is so much emotional anguish that you carry. Not only do you carry the weight of you want your, your child or your loved one to be well, you, you carry the, uh, the emotional weight of you wanting them to, uh, to be better. Um, you, you also, as an individual, you have this physical and this emotional toll that you take on as the caregiver. You ever been a caregiver and, and, and you feel the weight of that? It's like a heavy burden that feels like a smothering blanket to you sometimes. And you're exhausted and you're emotionally spent and you've done everything that you can, and you don't know if you've got enough energy to get back out of bed in the morning to do it, but by the grace of God, he gives you the strength that you need to get up, he gives you the love that you need for the person that you're giving care for, and you go at it again. Uh, Ashley and I, we were uh, talking with some of our friends, they don't live uh, in, in the state here, so I think I'm free to share the story. Um, we, were, we were talking um, with them, and uh, their son has been suicidal, uh, for some time, and uh, he's expressed that to them. He's not hidden it from them. He's actively tried, um, and so now you can ima imagine as a parent, that's one of the things that just scares you to death. I just hope that my kids never end up going through that, and we don't have to walk through something like that. Um, some of you maybe have already walked through that, and uh, so th here's, here's the emotional toil that they've had in that moment. Every, every night, one of them stays awake throughout the night by their side, by his side, so that he doesn't take his life. And then when that person's exhausted, they lay down, go to sleep, and they tag out so the other parent comes in and they take over shift. And that's been their existence for, for months upon months now. The emotional toll that that takes to carry that burden is heavy when you care about somebody in, in your life. I, I saw this uh, demonstrated by um, an, a dear friend of mine, 87 years old, that she just has loved the Lord and she loved her husband too, but he went through this, this, this long dying process. And she, and she walked beside of him. He was sick and ailing, but she cared so deeply for him until the day that Jesus took him home. And it's only by the grace of God that you, that you can get through something like that. But at the same time, that emotional weight that you carry as a caregiver is really heavy. Jesus asked this man, he said, how long has this kind of thing been happening? And he's asking about this for the boy, but under the surface, you're going to see in just a minute that he's also, he's talking to the caregiver. He's talking to the dad too. How long have you been carrying this load as well? And the dad tells him, this has been going on since he was little. 
just a little boy, which means that the boy isn't so little anymore to point out that since he was little. This has been happening for a long time. But it's almost like in mid-sentence, as he's talking about this, that the emotion catches up with him as a dad. And I can just imagine tears and snot just all over the place, just kind of gut-wrenching in this moment. Because in mid-sentence, he says, please have mercy on us. Not, not just mercy on the boy, but have mercy on us. Have mercy on him. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on us. And, and watch what he says next, though. He says, if you can, if you can. There seems to be some level of doubt here. But this man has showed an incredible amount of faith by bringing his son to Jesus, to the disciples, but then staying around for Jesus. So why would he say now, if you can? I'm not exactly sure, but I just think that there's something that's sitting down low inside of him that just wonders if if Jesus will do that for him. Not, Not necessarily could he do it, but will he choose to do it for him? And Jesus responds in 23. He says, what do you mean, if I can? Jesus asked, anything is possible if a person believes. If you've got your Bible and something to write with, would you circle believes or highlight it or whatever you have or type a note in there? Because this word is really important for us to understand. This is a word that's gotten twisted by faith healers in the past and and health and wealth guys uh, even today. Um, This word believe, um, it's been twisted over the years. Um, Does Jesus really mean that anything is possible if you just believe enough. I, I think what Jesus is doing here is he's getting to the object of their faith. What are you going to believe in? The word believe here, um, it's the, the way that it's used, it's used 269 times in the New Testament. That's a lot of times that this word pops up. And around half of those times that it's used, it's used in direct context of believing in Jesus, who the, the New Testament tells us time and time again that he is the ultimate object of our faith, that he is what we're looking to. He is the one in the Old Testament. Do you guys remember the, the wild story, I think, in the book of Numbers, where there's a disease going through the camp and uh, people are being bitten by snakes? Y'all remember that? It's a crazy Old Testament story. And, 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 and the people were told, hey, put a, uh, a bronze serpent up on a stake, and uh, if people would look to the snake... They will be healed, right? They just look to that. And, the, and so it was just bizarre. Like, it was like, it doesn't even make any sense. But this is what, this is what they're told to do. Look at the snake, and it, you're, you're, you're going to uh, be uh, healed. This is what Scripture tells us in the book of John is the object of our faith. It was pointing to Jesus. When we look to him, it makes sense. When we look to him, that's where healing is. This is the ultimate object of our faith. The way that believe here is used It's uh, putting complete trust in somebody with confidence and their nearness and their ability or their power to help. I was reading uh, just a few things by C.S. Lewis this week. And C.S. Lewis says, um, this is the kind of belief and trust that we're talking about when you see believe like this pop up. Did you just throw that quote up there? He said, you never know how much you really believe anything until it's truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. It's easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you are merely using it to cord a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? Too many times when we're talking about faith and we're talking about believing, we put the impetus on how strong our faith is instead of how strong the rope is that we're holding on to. How strong the rope is that's going to be bearing the weight. You, you see this kind of stuff happen with faith healers who are going to say, do you have enough faith 
Do you believe enough? If you could just muster enough energy, if you could just believe that you're going to be healed enough, then you will be healed. And there's a lot of pressure that, that is put on the person for them to believe enough. But it's not about how much faith you have in yourself. What Jesus is going to keep pointing out, it's about where your faith is. What are you putting your faith in? What are you believing? Are you believing in your own power and authority? Or are you going to believe in, in Jesus? The question that this man is asking wasn't if Jesus could heal. Jesus had already proven this over and over and over again that he could do that. The question now was if the father actually believed that Jesus could help him. That's, that's where the belief factor is. Is it going to be on you? Is it going to be on the disciples? Is it going to be on Jesus? Do you believe that he can help you? And here's what he says in verse 24. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. You ever said a prayer like that? I do believe. I believe. But there is something that is sitting inside of me that is keeping me away from fully trusting you. I believe, but, but things are starting to creep in. This is a spiritual battle that we face every single day that we wake up. I believe, but things are creeping onto my calendar. I believe, but doubt is beginning to creep in. I believe, but my gaze is beginning to shift away from the Savior to the things that the Savior gives. This issue isn't faith. We have faith. This man had faith. The battle is what are we going to look to right now, today, when the pressure's on? When the bill is due, when the kids are acting crazy and they won't stop fighting, where are we going to look? Is my faith going to be in me and my ability to get things done? Or is my trust going to be in God's ability to do that? The response that this man has when Jesus uh, confronts him is, Lord, I believe. Would you help my unbelief? And I think that's a prayer for every single one of us in the room. Lord, I believe, but help me when I, I doubt. What goes on is Jesus, he casts out the demon. There's a lot of ruckus that takes place. Uh, and, and, and when it's over, he takes the boy by the hand. Everybody thinks he's dead. And, and he stands him up and he begins to walk. Everybody in the room, they're in awe. And when the disciples get away with Jesus, this is often when Jesus gives them the crux of the moment. When, when they get away with Jesus, they're like, hey, what, what happened back there? Why couldn't we get that one? What, what was the big deal with that one? Why was it so difficult? And, and here, here's the deal. It's because you had a flat tire. You were counting on you instead of relying on me. And Jesus' response is, this kind can only be cast out by prayer. It's not going to be by your might. It's not going to be because you've done it before. It's not going to even be because I've shown up in that area before. It's not going to be because you've got it handled. It's not going to be because you can muster up enough strength. It's not going to be because you believe enough. The whole idea is that this is not about might and it's not about force, but it's through the power of God and God alone. Because there is a danger of familiarity where, where faith in our life really doesn't feel um, like it's a big deal for us anymore sometimes when we hit that season. We've seen Jesus do things. He's come through for us in the past. He's done things in us and through us. And to some degree, sometimes it becomes common or maybe even routine for us. So what do we do when we've got this flat tire that we're running on, when the passion begins to wane, when, when we're out of gas, do we start relying on ourselves? Do we start relying on God? Some of you, some old heads in the room are, are going are gonna to get this. Um, uh, you guys remember the song by Journey? Who's a Journey fan growing up? Yeah, baby, let's go. You remember that song, Don't Stop Believing? 
Is that what it's called? Don't stop believing? I don't even know if that's what it's called. But when it comes on the radio, you just turn it up, right? You're on three, you turn it to 10. It's just how it goes. That's the idea here, is that when we're in this rut, we don't stop believing in the one who has the power to do the work in us and through us. We don't start believing that we can handle it on our own. We stop believing that we can do it ourselves, and we start believing that God and God alone can do it. Um, There are a lot of self-help systems out there that say believe in yourself more and more. There's a lot of us uh, people are saying, just just do more. Just become the best version uh, of yourself, and everything's going to be fine. But Jesus is showing us self-help doesn't work. When everybody else is saying believe in yourself more, what Jesus is saying, trust in me more. Here's how I want to end. We used A.W. Tozer here uh, a minute ago, and I want to finish up with him. Um, if you've not read anything from him, guys, he's good. Um, it's just he focuses in on, on Jesus and the holiness of God so strongly, um, and, and he just believes that he's worthy of all of our glory or all of his glory and all of our praise. He says, believing then is directing the heart's attention to Jesus. If you say, well, is, is believing it? That's all I got to do is just believe? <laughs> It says, believing then is directing the heart's attention to Jesus. It's lifting the mind to behold the Lamb of God and never ceasing that beholding for the rest of our lives. At first, this may be difficult, but it becomes easier as we look steadily at his wondrous person, quietly and without strain. Distractions may hinder, but once the heart is committed to him, after each brief excursion away from him, the attention will return again and rest upon him like a wandering bird coming back to its window. What I love about that is he doesn't try to assume that it's not going to happen, that our gaze isn't going to be taken away, that it's not, we're not going to be distracted. He says, when we are sold out on the fact that our gaze is to be on the Lord, we're going to keep coming back to this and to resettle into where he's at. And so if, if your gaze has been shifted in the wrong location for a while, look to him. Look to him. Believe in him. When our faith feels flat or routine, Look at Jesus. Fix your gaze on him. Would you pray with me? Father, it uh, seems so simple to believe in you and not believe in ourselves, to trust your power, not our own power. But yet, we keep doing it. <laughs> um, we, we keep fixing our gaze in other areas. It's so easy, so easy to be distracted, Lord. We are in a spiritual battle, and would you just, uh, would you fight for us? Your Holy Spirit that's in us as believers, would you keep drawing our heart back to you and fixing our gaze upon you? For my brothers, uh, for my friends in the room who haven't yet trusted you, God, I pray that today would be a day where they, they truly believe all of their weight, all of their confidence in the rope of Jesus, that they would look to you. That's where true healing is. That's where true hope is. And and for us who have trusted, I I just pray that you would give us the strength to keep coming back to you. When we're weak, Father, when our gaze has has, has began to be pulled away, just keep pulling us back, I pray in Jesus' name. Let us look to you. Amen. Love you guys.